The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by Spidey-Dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show, if you like, via Patreon.com slash Network. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email, if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Spidey Network on Facebook is the general network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout out before we get started also is to our two of our patrons, Scott and Venkman. Thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans. As usual, I am Greg Bashansky, and I'm being joined by my partner in crime, co-host, and in three days from recording, birthday girl, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hey, everybody. And also joining us once again is the supervising producer and co-creator of Gargoyles, the writer of the SLG comic book, and the voice of Commando Number 2, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. How, how is everybody doing? I want to once again wish Jen a very happy birthday. You know, I, a, a German friend of mine told me that it's bad luck to wish somebody happy birthday before their birthday, and I had never heard that before. <laughs> and now suddenly all my birthdays make so much sense. <laughs> well, we hope it's a good one anyway, so sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it will be good. Thank you. <laughs> And uh, before we get started on the episode, we have a little bit of news. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. Kid Robot, which is owned by NECA, is releasing a Gargoyles plushie. Have you two seen this? I've seen a picture of it online, uh, yeah, I- but I haven't. Seen the, uh, I haven't like seen it in person or anything. Yeah, it won't be. Yeah, on, it I've, se- I've seen it online. It is freaking adorable. <laughs> Looks like Hatchling Goliath. 
I, I feel like Goliath would be offended that we would be like, oh, he's so cute! But, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it should be out early next year, except for pre-order on web, websites like Big Bad Toy Store. And that's for you waiting for your neck of Goliath, so hopefully by the time this thing posts, everyone should have them in hand. Things have slowed down due to the current shipping crisis. But hopefully by the time this posts as well, we'll have pre-orders for Demona at least. Well, you know, that's the important one for me. <laughs> for me, too. Well, <laughs> even though my wish list is very comprehensive. <laughs> and that's the news for this installment. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. We're, I guess we'll pick up where we left off. We, we're still on the Awakening Five-Parter. We're on part two now, and... Um, Interesting things happen this uh, in this episode. Important things. I mean, only moving from one century to another and a and across a continent. But before we really dive into that, I was looking at some old documents, and Greg, I think it's very interesting that you portrayed the Magus as this young sorcerer. You don't usually see that too often, especially since in some of the earlier documents it looks like. In earlier drafts of the outline, he was a doddering old wizard whose powers were winning. Uh, I think that was back in the comedy development. I, I don't feel like uh, we really uh, played him that way ever in, in, once we switched over to a, a drama. Uh, we wanted him to be a serious uh, uh, antagonist. Um but yeah, we did end up making him younger um, than we had originally uh, planned. And it worked out, I think. <laughs> Very interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I have a weakness for anybody with white hair, so I'm the love-hate thing I had going on with the Magus <laughs> was pretty epic. But he was, uh, I think, having him more of a contempor- contemporary to the princess like worked really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we felt pretty good about it, um, and, you know, it gave us some place to go with him for later episodes, which I'm sure we'll discuss down the road. Mm-hmm. And then the scene where they, where the trio and Bronx come out of the rookery and find their clan shattered is just as heartbreaking as... Goliath finding them, and the funny thing is that I've noticed, I don't even think they really had time to grieve. All of a sudden, they were on the move to avenge them. Yeah, well, I, I mean, mean we, I mean, if I yeah. woke up and my whole family was dead, I'd be on the move to avenge somebody, too. <laughs> True. Grieving comes later. <laughs> Grieving comes later. And we get an interesting scene at the Vikings camp, and um, Hudson gets his sword. It's a very quick Blink and you'll miss it moment. It really is, and it was not meant to be. It was incredibly frustrating, and on top of it, if you look carefully, it's the wrong damn fucking sword. It, you know, the sword he winds up getting uh, from the Viking isn't the one he's, he uh, winds up with for the entire rest of the series. And it was um, one of these moments where, uh, for whatever reason, even though we, uh, Frank and I called it probably two or three times, both in the storyboard and in the animation, getting that beat was really tough. Another beat that was really tough 
was really important to me is we'd seen Broadway in episode one when the Vikings first attack. He sort of stops to eat and then, okay, he's in the middle of eating and some guy comes, some Viking comes by, so he bops him on the head. Sort of comedic beat. And I really wanted to contrast that here, so I wanted this moment where he flies down and we think he's doing the same thing. He's he's just uh, going to eat, but he is just, in essence, weaponizing that turkey leg. Um, and they had him eating again. And we're like, no, he can't eat here. They're like, he's the one who eats. I'm like, I know he's the one who eats. He can't eat here. This is too serious. We want to have the audience. So they're like, okay, so we won't pick up the turkey leg. I'm like, no. We want the audience for a second to think that this guy's a cliche who'd rather eat, you know, than have revenge. But then we see that immediately it's not about the food. It's about the weapon. And it took us a And that one we got, finally. It was hard. I don't know why it was hard. But it was just hard. I guess things got lost in the translation, and they just didn't want to do it. Um, and another thing that we had to just really push through was Hudson getting his sword, not having it before them, because they kept, you know, his main model had the sword on his belt. So even when he wasn't fighting with the sword prior to that moment, they kept putting it on his belt, you know, sheathed on his belt and we're like no he doesn't have it yet okay now he has it oh you've got to see him take the sword and keep it oh it's the wrong sword and we just ran out of time it just wound up being the wrong sword that he grabs and then later he's got a sword and it, in theory it's that's the sword he took but you know that's the problem of course with watching these things years later is that um, all I see are the mistakes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which hopefully the audience isn't focusing on, frankly. Well, I'm glad you got the Broadway scene right because that would have that's the sort of thing that would have turned fans against the character very early on and it would have been hard for him to come back from that. So I'm glad they eventually got it right. Uh, I hope it wouldn't have turned him on, but it... it definitely would have lost that nuance of his character and and uh so we uh you know uh on any show you work on uh you're constantly striving to make it be the best show it can be and ultimately there are limitations of uh time and uh and money and etc and it, it it never quite turns out to be exactly what you want it to be. But, uh, you know, you just try to get it as close as you possibly can. Well, let's talk about a scene that went perfectly then. It's shortly afterwards, Goliath catches up with the captain and Hakon, and he is murderous. And we get that perfect, iconic Chernabog moment, as I believe you've described it in the past with that classic line that we've been lucky enough to hear Keith David use that one in person. <laughs> I've been denied everything, even my revenge! <laughs> yes, we have. Keith uh, really yeah, loved I that mean, line. <laughs> uh, 
it's still a great moment. I, you know, I saw it last night, and, and of course, aged person that I am, I forgot that I ever referred to it as a Chernobog moment. And so last night I'm like, wow, that's a real Chernobog moment. Um, as if that was a new thought. Uh, <laughs> when I rewatched the episode. Um, but um, that says more about uh, the deterioration of my brain than anything else. But no, it's so well done. And I love that he... It, it says a lot about his character in that moment that he chooses to save Princess Catherine instead of taking revenge on the captain and on Hakon. And and that moment where Hakon just points his finger at the captain, he's the one you want, you shattered him. Yeah, I mean, Hakon's pretty repulsive. I think. Yes. And the captain, you know, is, uh, I hope, you know, this flawed but sympathetic character. I mean, he, he's done something horrible here. Um, and, you know, he, he lacked, he had the courage to betray the castle and, and didn't have enough courage to uh, do what he needed to do to keep the gargoyles safe based on his own plan. But, um, you know, you want these characters to have these shades of gray and to have, you know, the range from Hakon on the one end to Tom, the little boy on the other end. So you've got, and then everything in the middle. I mean, I think again, one of the moments here that's pretty chilling comes earlier than this when Goliath says, you know, like a good hero, we will, you know, find them. We will free the humans, all good, and we will have our revenge. And you're like, what? What? <laughs> is, you know, this was not a typical Saturday morning hero. He's sitting there talking about revenge in quite a murderous manner. And, um, and that's what we were trying to do is show that, you know, Goliath's not perfect either. Uh, you know, he's not Superman uh, or or even Batman, you know, he's uh, a guy who is setting out for revenge. And um, we weren't trying to present that as a good thing. We are just trying to present him as real. Well, he does, he does go through, like, a, all the emotions, like, in this. Like, he's got grief, and then he's got relief at seeing that the trio and Bronx are still alive. And then his anger and just frustration at, at not even getting his revenge and then his resignation, you know, of, of his fate. Um, he really, really goes through it all. And we're probably getting ahead of ourselves, but the suicide moment, because that's what that is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how, focus the fans where I mean, I've talked about this enough at this point that, uh, you know, you bring it up that way. Uh, um, but you know, the key thing for me is that, um, that was not in our original story. We had some Byzantine reason why, um, the Magus offers this to Goliath. Like, look, I can't bring your guys back, but I can put you in the same situation. So that if ever they come back, you'll come back. 
And my boss, Gary Kreisel, actually said, that's, that's not good. That's not right. Have Goliath ask for it. And that changed the whole tone of it because Goliath asking for the spell to be cast on uh, one more time on him as well is not thinking in terms of the spell ever being broken. You know, the, the conditions of the spell are so outrageous, you know, uh, till the castle rises above the clouds, you know, you might as well be saying till kingdom come, which in essence is what the Magus thought it meant. It's not like the Magus thought, well, someday that castle is going to rise above the clouds. You know it's going to happen. Skyscrapers will happen, guys. <laughs> they will happen. I mean, it's not, it's not like some kind of prognosticator thinking that... A, thousand years in the future we're going to build tall fucking buildings he is um assuming that that in essence this is a condition that will never come true and um so our explanation that is uh paul lacy michael reeves and myself's explanation that he would make this offer seemed uh shallow and and you know it's one of the lessons i learned uh, was that when you get notes from upstairs, from the executives, from the powers that be, there's a neat, there, and I still have it, a knee-jerk reaction to just say, no, I know what I'm doing, leave me alone, don't give me notes. Even when I know I have to take them, I have that knee-jerk reaction. <laughs> um, but that was a great note. I mean, just a great note. And so it reminds you to keep an open mind. Um, sometimes the notes are helpful and useful and terrific even. And um, this one was just that. Um, and what's interesting is, is that even for uh, our initial uh, target audience of uh, 6 to 11-year-olds, um, we felt that was very understandable in execution. Uh, obviously, Keith did an amazing job reading that line. Um, and the shock on the faces of the princess and and the magus uh, tell a piece of that story, too. But, yeah, he is, in essence, committing suicide. He's saying, you take my eggs. I know I'm the dad. I can't deal. I can't do it. I cannot do it. Watch over them. I'm done. And he asks, in essence, for them to put him to sleep. Um, and permanently. He's assuming it's permanent. And when he wakes up, there's a real joy there because he's not waking up alone. You know, um, for him, not much time has passed. You know, he's been dreaming for a thousand years, but that doesn't pass like real time. And um, so when he wakes up uh, in 1994 Manhattan, before he's aware that he's in Manhattan or what year it is, he looks down from the top of the tower and sees, you know, his mentor and the three young warriors and the beast, you know, breaking out. And that is enough for him to want to go on. Uh, and he leaps down and is truly joyful. He could deal with the massacre of 95% of his clan, 
He's a tough guy, but he couldn't deal with the massacre of 100% of his clan. He couldn't be the only one, even with the eggs coming in, you know, X amount of years. He couldn't be the only one. He wasn't strong enough for that, at least not back then. I've seen some people unjustifiably give him a little bit of crap in certain corners of the fandom for that, for abandoning the eggs. But I often look at that and I think people who might say that just have, and on a personal note, no real true understanding of what depression can do to someone. Or extreme loss like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, was it the right call in the moment? Maybe not, but I understand why he made that call. And him tr- and him trusting the cap. I mean, the Magus and Princess Catherine is also a huge step. I mean, he was obviously in grief, but I love the fact that they're showing huge signs of changing and regret. And Catherine had probably just seen Goliath at his outright scariest. I can imagine he went out of his way not to show that side of him to her when she was already afraid of him, and she still does a turn. Yeah, she takes a big turnaround in this. I remember... Uh, yeah, I mean... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I, I've talked a lot. You go. <laughs> I, I'm... I'm thinking. I was thinking back to like when I first watched, it and what what was I thinking and feeling back then? You know, before knowing the whole whole story and everything, and I remember thinking, if the Magus is so damn powerful, why the hell didn't he just turn a bunch of Vikings into stone, and we wouldn't have had to have this problem? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. They took his book away from. Well, him. I mean, I, I have the I have the quote unquote Comic Con answer for that, which is. Uh, uh, that, you know, the magic was aided by the gargoyle's own uh, natural processes, that that would have been a lot harder than uh, um, than what we uh, depicted there. But, uh, um, you know, that's the answer you give when you're uh, William Shatner on Saturday Night Live trying to explain... Um, certain things. <laughs> to, to get a life speech. <laughs> well, when, when, you, when in essence you don't want to give the get a life speech, um, you pretend that you've thought out every single permutation of everything and uh, and so, you you know, we do this on Young Justice. Back in the Gargoyles days, I didn't know to do this. But uh, on Young Justice, um, we had, we are constantly coming up with Comic-Con answers to explain things that we realized after the fact we didn't quite get right or we couldn't quite get the animation on or whatever. We have what we call our Comic-Con answers to problems that we recognize too late to solve. So, so like, uh, in, in this episode you hear um, Owen say that uh, the locals consider the castle haunted. Later on, we find out that Hakon and the captain are haunting the caves below it. Like, so you weren't thinking about Hakon and the captain when you wrote this? Is that what you're saying to me? (laughs) Uh, I'm saying that... uh, You're supposed to have it all sorted out. I think it came... I think... um, 
a lot of times um, Michael or one of the other writers would write something and it would stick with me. Uh, the Amir who uh, comes up a little ways down the line was like that. And this may have been another example of that. I can't honestly remember for sure, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if, um, again, that, you know, I tried to pay attention to the scripts that we were turning out. And if there was something there that felt like a hook um, for something down the road, we began to plan for those things. Um, but sometimes it was serendipity. And that's true on any show. You know, certain things you plan out in advance and certain things you sort of discover along the way. I mean, um, we'll get to it, but the relationship between Xanatos and Fox was not something we planned in, in well, not very far in advance, but uh, it was something we discovered in making the show. And I can't remember about this one specifically, but it's very likely that this was another one where that one line stuck with me. And so later we went back and explored it. And you've already mentioned him. Let's formally meet him. We jump forward a thousand years to, um, although I suppose at the time this would have been 1993 on your timeline when he showed up in Scotland, but... And we meet the man himself. He has an entire trope named after him, David Xanatos. Xanatos Gambit. Yes, Greg, tell us about the development of this guy. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we didn't call it the Xanatos Gambit back then. We just called them Xanatos Tags. Michael Reeves and Frank Parr and I, we would just talk about them as. Uh, let's do these tags where we reveal what was really going on from the point of view of, of our villain. Uh, Xanatos, I, I'm proud of, you know, I think we talked about this a couple episodes back, but um, I think he is a really unique villain, or at least was back then. Um, I was determined, and again, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was all me. It wasn't. It was me and Michael and Frank, um, and ultimately a bunch of other people as well, but um, I was determined as one of the showrunners that um, David not be petty, um, not be um, mean, not be revengeful, though we could play the, that as a villainous trope that then he would, um, you know, uh, thwart you know, surprise us by not really being um, that guy uh, who, and the thing about villains is, is that when Xanatos, you know, when Coyote, and then you find out it's Xanatos under the helmet, is acting all vengeful, you buy into it, because of course he's vengeful, he's the bad guy, right? And then you find out, no, first off, wasn't really him. It was just a robot that looked like him. And second off, He's not like that at all. He's got plans within plans within plans. And the idea of plans within plans um, is something that Carrie Bates and I did with a character called uh, General Wade Ealing when we wrote Captain Adam for DC Comics a few years um, prior to Gargoyles uh, in the late 80s and or into the early 90s. Um, and Ealing was not as charming by any means as Xanatos. That's something that we added, Michael added, obviously Jonathan Frakes who plays him 
added it. Um, but that idea of, hey, there's a plan A um, that you think is what the villain's all about, and then you come to find out, no, no, no. Um, if he'd gotten A, that would have been great, but his real goal was plan B. And then we even made fun of that at, in one episode where he actually had it. Plan C, Plan D. I mean, again, we'll get to this down the road. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was that idea that you could actually find this guy charming. And one thing we definitely did discuss was that okay, let's try and fool the audience in this first episode that he's in into thinking that he's not a villain at all, but that this is going to be their benefactor. That he is Bruce Wayne. That he is a charming you know, rogue with a wink and a ponytail for some reason. Um, and, uh, well, it and was the nineties. Uh, it was the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he, uh, you know, was going to be, uh, their buddy. And there's one moment when they're inside the castle and he's telling them about how much time has passed and what happened to the eggs and, how he's got the grimoire and what it told him and sort of explaining it where he gets this one sort of look on his face that drives me crazy still because I'm like, Oh my God, that one look is telegraphing that he's sneaky. Um, and again, it became this sort of minor fight between, uh, uh, us and, and Walt Disney animation Japan because they're like, but he's sneaky. We're like, we know that. <laughs> We don't want to reveal that yet. Oh, and so they tone it down, but not to my mind enough. And and ultimately, that look stayed in the show. I think you more or less slide by it. Um, but and I think the battle that that follows, where he clearly seems to be on the gargoyle side, and the gargoyles are helping him, and he's getting, you know, banged up a little by the commandos who are attacking and stealing something from him I think that helps a great deal to let you forget that look but there's that one look and again uh, you know 20 some years later almost 30 at this point uh, often what I see is not the best parts of the show but the parts that, that made me nuts then and still make me nuts today I'll admit, when I first saw it back in the day, I was a little bit suspicious of him. I remember thinking, I hope he's on the up and up. I mean, because he, were ju he was just sending out mostly positive signals, but a few, but a few uh, sneaky signals kind of uh, came through as well, which I chalked up to you playing fair with your audience. I mean, there's a you've been doing throughout the show. I mean, also that that line of his, pay a man enough and he'll walk barefoot into hell. Never heard anything like that in a cartoon like this. That was pure Michael Reeves. Uh, you know, I love the line, don't get me wrong, but I can't take any credit for it. That was absolutely uh, Michael um, wrote that line in. And I remember reading it and going, yeah, there's no way this is going to get through. <laughs> and then it did. Um, and of course the excuse for getting through is that, uh, no one, he's not cursing. No one, he's talking about hell as if it's a place, uh, you know, a, it's a biblical reference or something along those lines. You know, I mean, it's not him 
cursing, if, they, if you've been cursing and using the word hell, as mild a, an epithet as that is, uh, certainly relative to how I've been talking today without thinking about it, it cursed me. Um, it's all right, we don't care. <laughs> um, you know, it still would never have gone through as that, but it was able to go through uh, um, as written because it's not a curse word. It's, it's in essence, a discussion of a mythical place. And, um, but I wouldn't have even thought to try. And Michael put it in, and I thought, well, let's give it a shot. <laughs> I figured it'd get shot down. It didn't, and I was very glad. Uh, but, yeah, that was absolutely a Michael Reeves line. And it's one of the most memorable uh, moments of the entire show. People quote it all over the Internet whenever he comes up. Yeah. So I'm glad he got that in there. And like I said, I thought I thought you were playing fair with the audience. I mean, looking back, I remember noticing that he leans against the table and talks to them. When he shows up at the castle, he goes straight for Goliath. He's just fascinated by him. And I remember thinking, he, he has to know something. And... When we get to the castle to New York City and he's standing on the top tower watching Goliath and I just remember thinking he has to know what's up and also in uh, in retrospect when he says don't disappoint me I have a feeling that, that line is him directing potential frustration if this doesn't work to his currently unseen business partner who we'll get to later on. I think that's a fair interpretation, although I'll be honest, I don't think that was what was in our, in my head anyway. I think that um, I was, in fact, thinking that he's just, he's talking about, not Goliath specifically, but this phenomenon that he's expecting to have happen here. Um, he's clearly paid a fortune for it, and I think he can justify it even in failure if he has to. Um if it with a, work, he has uh, the penthouse ever. <laughs> exactly, but uh, but it's a lot of money, and he is expecting something out of that, uh, you know, out of that money, and uh, and uh, fortunately for everybody, he gets what he wants. <laughs> and astronomical, I believe Owen said, but let's also in talk about the art direction here as well it was just gorgeous the first time we see the city i remember thinking they drew the fdr drive <laughs> when we get that first shot and uh, because i've never seen it in a cartoon and many take place in new york city so i was excited to see that being a new yorker and um that first shot of the building itself i mean that does that building is gorgeous and it just um it sums up the aesthetic of the series right then and there the ultra modern with the medieval yeah, and that was always the idea um, going back uh, to the early development, even the comedy development. But absolutely, once Frank came aboard, that uh, building was transformed. I mean, we always had a castle atop a skyscraper. That was always part of the idea. But Frank really guided... Uh, our Japanese partners into making something truly incredible. And, and I think Frank talked when he was on the show about going to New York and taking all those photographs and then sending all those photographs. And we also sent clips of the city from things like the David Letterman opening and, and stuff like that. 
and they just went to town on it with their BG design. I mean, and it is gorgeous. And, and you go from sort of night in the 10th century to broad daylight in the 20th century Scotland to this sort of hazy um, city. It sort of goes from helicopter to helicopter. You've got the sort of uh, uh, working helicopter that takes away the, the top of the tower. Um, and then you've got this sleek, you know, jet helicopter of Xanatos's, um, and uh, and you get this city, and then you get you know sunset starts to come on, and and the characters wake up. This was another challenge was trying to get uh, our animators overseas to understand that that we wanted to see a thin layer of stone explode off the gargoyles. Um, some of you. Uh, of your listeners will probably have seen off the uh, original first season DVD, that preview that we did um, uh, that, or maybe at a convention saw that preview that showed all the gargoyles waking up without any stone skin shattering off. That's because we had to send it back and get the stone skin later. And the preview was done before we had time to make that fix. Um, but it, you know, getting that explosion, you know, they just had the stone sort of falling off them. Well, first they just had it dissolving. Like the lawn gnomes. Um, from, from an image of them in stone to an image of them not stone. Uh, and then we said, no, no, it's gotta be stone. It just sort of fell off them. We're like, no, it's gotta be explosive. And, um, and so it took us a few turns to get to that but it's a pretty incredible shot any way you shake it I mean you're rotating around that tower um, and that is a hard to do um, to maintain perspective and to um, make that work and and it it, it turns out pretty uh, I, that was something I thought turned out pretty well I was pretty happy with it it's spectacular. And Jen, I gotta ask, I mentioned mine, what were your first impressions of Xanatos? Um, he's super hot. <laughs> he is. I'm a straight man, I'll say that he is. Is that not the right answer? <laughs> no, <I guess laughs> he's definitely super hot, but uh, yeah, I'd like I don't know. I, I was so enamored with the gargoyles themselves. I don't think I put much initial thought into Xanatos until the fight. Uh, uh, and then I was like, like the whole thing seemed a little too convenient. So, but that was just, you know, me. My kids were like, yay, explosions. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> levels. <laughs> Perfect. But, um, but yeah, the, and the contrast of the Great Hall, it was this warm, inviting, despite the gargoyles being thrown out of it place in the uh, 10th century, now it's this cold foyer. The art direction's just brilliant. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was that idea that let's take this castle, um, there'll be aspects of it that are just as medieval as they ever were, but there'll be other aspects that are truly that, you know, have been modernized, uh, the kitchen, the library, uh, 
um, you know, all sorts of areas. And, and the first sort of glimpse you really get of that is here with the, uh, you know, with, with that uh, great hall now being sort of recast as, as a modern meeting space. Um, and yet still has touches of it. Like you still got the Grimoire Mark and Norm under glass in there and stuff like that. But uh, it's got the um, tapestries again, and everything. I mean, it, it, it just like made it shiny. <laughs> Right. Gorgeous, gorgeous. He made it his, as he as he should. And um, that battle is actually really cool. We talked about it a little bit, and you were uh, commando number two. I was definitely a commando. I forget what number. Uh, I'm the guy who says "nice mask" there. Uh, Your voice acting um, debut. No, actually, uh, my uncredited voice acting, this was also uncredited and, you know, from a union standpoint, illegal. Um, but my, uh, voice acting debut was actually in an episode of Tailspin that is obviously so beloved that, uh, it's one of the two or three episodes that, uh, Disney plus isn't showing of Tailspin on the, on uh, their streaming service. Uh, Why are they not uh, But I had a... I, it had a... Uh, I had a one-line role as a panda saying, Father, the rockets aren't working. Talking to his uh, dad, who also was a panda. <laughs> um, I would hope so. Um, and uh, that was, I guess, my voice acting debut was on Tailspin. Um, and so this was my second shot at it. Um, years later, uh, I joined SAG and I, uh, on Spider-Man, um, I joined SAG and now I uh, regularly do voices on my own shows. Um, I'm the only one who hires me. Uh, don't understand why. I'm fantastic, but no one else hires me. Uh, and uh so you know i i tend to take a a small but fun role here and there and was donald mankin on spectacular spider-man and uh lucas carr and the ultra humanite on young justice and i've done roles on witch and a few other things i i actually got to play a stormtrooper uh on star wars rebels which was a lot of fun um, Very cool. And, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, back then I wasn't SAG. So, uh, I think what it really amounted to is that we just sort of realized we had a, a gap here and we needed someone to rush in there and get behind the mic and say it. And we shouldn't have done it. It's not allowed. Now that I'm in SAG, I'm outraged by it. But, uh, <laughs> at the time I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and, uh, and it's just two words. Nice mask. It was getting the sarcasm, actually, that we had. I don't remember who it was, but we asked some actor to do it, and they kept saying it, like, sincerely. Like, wow, that's a great mask. Wow, that's, that's a really mask. cool mask you got there, bud. Nice mask. <laughs> nice mask. We're like, no, no, it's got to be sarcastic. And they're like, nice mask? And we're like, No. <laughs> And, you 
know, Jamie and I are in the control room and we're like astounded that this otherwise fantastic performer can't seem to get what we're getting at here. Um, and so we just, uh, pretended we had gotten it from, uh, him and, uh, and then I ran in there and did it after he was gone. <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, you know, we have small claims to fame. I guess that's one of them. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was sort of our... Uh, you know, it, it's a fun battle. It, it's long, actually, screen time-wise. It's, it's a very long fight. Um and, you know, the gargoyles do pretty well considering they're up against automatic weapons and concussion grenades and smoke bombs and um, helicopters, all this uh, crap they've never even imagined before, let alone seen. But we tried to use it to sort of illustrate things about the gargoyles, about how they fight, about their biology even. So you get this moment. You know, how many times have you seen Batman knock off a roof and he grabs a flagpole on the way down and swings himself back up? So I really wanted to play that moment, which is in there, where Goliath is falling and he grabs the flagpole, but he's so heavy that it just yanks the flagpole off and he keeps falling. Um, And he has to drop the flagpole and then use his claws to arrest um, his descent. And we knew that there'd be a group of people watching the show is like, he's got wings. What is the problem here? And they'd have to wait an episode for the explanation to that. But uh, um, he climbs back up um, because seemingly this was the one night across all of the year 1994 and 95 um, into 96 when there was no wind in New York. <laughs> um, no currents that he could glide on. You're establishing the rules. It's okay. (laughs) Well, that was kind of thing we had to establish the rules, so we did it there, and we wanted to do it there so that by the time we got to the next episode, without spoiling too much, um, we'd the audience would already at least have a sense of this. We'd been consistent the way we'd played it. but yeah, I mean that. But that beat when he grabs the flagpole—that was again one of these moments that I'm like, this is part of what's showing how these guys are different, or you know, um, showing Lexington's character by, uh, you know, Hudson sees the helicopter and thinks it's a dragon. In fact, he's positive of it. He says, "Oh, it's a dragon, without a doubt." And <laughs> Lexington's like, "No, that was some kind of machine. I don't know how it works yet." But um, but that was clearly a machine. So we wanted to show Lexington's sort of savant-like uh, tech abilities starting to shine through, even at this early date, at least relative to the others. But we also, you know, dropping that line about the dragon is something that, again, I've always wanted to pick up on. Like we talked about the castle being haunted. That line about the dragon is something I've always wanted to pick up on, and we've never quite gotten around to it. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Here's hoping. But, um... Oh, yeah. Wait, I have a question. I have a question. Why did we decide that they can't fly? Why What was the? Why did we decide they were just going to glide and not actually fully fly? 
Do you want the honest answer, or do you want me to... I'm going to guess probably easier to animate, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. It was much more difficult. Honestly, it was more difficult to consistently play that as gliding and not fly. We'd constantly have to keep the background moving behind them. They couldn't hover, for example. If you can't fly, you can't hover. Um, It was harder to do it that way. Um, But the truth is, is that it was a Kenner decision. Um, Kenner Toys was our partner, and they, uh, their interest in the show, that is the money that they were paying Disney, is part of what paid for the show. Um, and they wanted to have vehicles, because vehicles are the high price point. You know, you spend X amount of money for action figures, but where you really make your money is on the vehicles. So, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to this story down the road, too. They wanted a Gargoyles helicopter and a Gargoyles this and a Gargoyles that. And we're like, guys, that makes no sense. They can fly. They have wings. They can fly. And um, and my boss, again, Gary Kreisel, um, sort of sat me down and said, they can glide. They can't fly. And I'm like, Gary. And he's like, listen. He said, you're thinking that I am bending to the toy company and I'm making you bend to the toy company. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and that's true. But if they can fly, it makes their lives easier. If they can only glide, it makes their lives harder. And again, you know, this dumb young 30-year-old, eyes open wide, and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so they can, they can only glide. They can't fly. It was a huge pain, uh, animation-wise, to make them only able to glide. But it helped us with story all over the place. And, again, you don't want heroes who are so powerful that it's hard to beat them. You want your heroes no matter how powerful they are, to in some way have qualities that make them underdogs. And this was one that allowed us to do that. And, um, and again, I fought it for a long time. And then once I was convinced, I embraced it thoroughly, um, enthusiastically. But initially, I was uh, not on board with it at all. And, uh, and so, you know... Uh, I was kind of a pain in the ass about it uh, until Gary sort of explained to me why it wasn't just a toy thing. It was a character thing that was going to help us. Um, But, you know, we learn lessons as we go. And it's good to know that even executives sometimes have great ideas because I feel they often get a bad rap, often for good reason, but this is two great ideas from Gary Kreisel within the course of this Recording, I mean, terrific. And then we get that scene mm-hmm. afterwards where Xanatos gives the big trust me line. And I'll admit, maybe this is me reading too much into his character design. I've never seen this one asked before, and Bob Klein isn't here, and I know he designed Xanatos originally. But usually when you see these CEO types like Lex Luthor or Norman Osborn, they're in these power suits, suits and ties. I kind of feel like... Xanatos 
not wearing the tie kind of has a disarming effect. He looks more casual, a little bit more casual, despite looking all business, and it kind of draws you in a little bit more. Am I reading too much into this? I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't want to pretend I remember stuff that I don't remember, but. You know, obviously, at some point, we must have had a discussion about should he be wearing a tie, um, because he was a businessman. It was man. the '90s; like power uh, ties were the thing. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it, at some point, we must have come to the conclusion: no, that's not the look he's uh, affecting. You know, that that's not what he's going for here, and. Um, so I don't remember a specific discussion about that like I remember the two Gary discussions we just talked about. But him not wearing a tie does go back to Bob Klein's original design, and we never changed it. Uh, and at some point, it, there's no way that couldn't have come up. So it must have been a choice. It might have been Bob's choice. It probably was. Um, and then none of us changed it anyway along the way. But I can't imagine that that wouldn't have been discussed. So we must have, I would guess, for the very reasons you just laid out, uh, have come to that conclusion. But I, I just can't remember. You know, I can't remember for sure. Maybe, maybe Bob would uh, or Frank would, but uh, um, I just I can't remember. Either way, the design worked. I mean, I'm going to say the design worked in every recording that we do because it's a gorgeous looking show and among other things and we've pretty much come full circle as well back to the beginning of the first episode and we know and we'll pick up with Elisa more in the next one but um before we begin wrapping up are there any other aspects of this episode Jen anything I remember at the end of it when Elisa says that um, she's going to find out what's going on up there like Morgan comes up and is like, what's going on? And she's like, I'm going to find out. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to see her in action. <laughs> like, we were her at the beginning. I couldn't wait to find out more about her. And, uh, and, and we were about to get, to get to have more of her, so I was pretty excited. She was already intriguing. Yeah. Although I do wonder, since you mentioned that this was originally a four-parter and the first act of this was the last act of the Dark Ages was brought here was the original cliffhanger supposed to be her falling off the building that we'll see in the next episode I I, I honestly don't remember, I might remember once I see episode 3 again um, it's been years since I've watched Gargoyles and I'm watching them the night before we record these, each episode the night before, so it's been a long time since I've seen the third part of of awakening. Um, once I see it, it might sort of jog my memory um, of exactly where it ended in the fourth part. I'm very clear memory that originally the first part ended uh, um, the entire uh, dark ages sequence was all in the first part. Um, right. And, uh, but uh, so that in essence, Act one of the second part would have begun with Xanatos arriving at the castle in modern day Scotland or 1994 Scotland by today's standards. But, uh, um, but I can't quite remember 
where it was supposed to end. Um, and maybe watching part three will jog my memory. Or, you know, maybe it won't. We'll see. <laughs> Either way, we're having a good time, I hope. 50-50 chance. <laughs> yes. Well, I think we've uh, covered part two. We've got three more parts in this pilot, this very ambitious, beautiful pilot. And, um, Jen, do you have anything you want to plug? Nope. <laughs> Not a dang thing. I'm busy working on some stuff that I'll be able to, to post later, but uh, right now, I'm probably by the still by the time that people hear this, uh, probably not. But if you want to support me and uh, you like uh, stickers and artwork, go to heyaspa.com and uh, check it out. That is the greatest URL in the history of the internet. <laughs> and Greg, do you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, not quite yet. I mean, soon uh, we've got uh, 18 episodes of Young Justice uh, Season 4, Young Justice Phantoms in the can, um, and uh, six more in post, and the last two are still being animated. Um, but I don't yet know. Uh, I mean, I know it's going to be on HBO Max, but I don't yet know the date that it's going to premiere, so I can't uh, sort of say, hey, tune in such and such, because I just don't know when. Um, uh, my guess is, is that there'll be some promotion for it at uh, DC Fandom on October 16th, um, but I don't even know what um, they're going to show at Fandom for us. Um, so <laughs> I'm hoping to have more information. Of course, by the time this airs, um, we may all know more, but at this moment when we're recording it, I'm still pretty much in the dark about when uh, um, the show is coming out. Uh, but we're progressing. We're making it. All right. Excellent. Sounds good. We look forward to it. We're definitely looking forward to it. And listeners, thank you for listening to us as well. Greg, thank you. Jen, thank you. Great partner in crime. The best partner in crime. The the Demona to my Xanatos, although I'm really probably the Owen to your Xanatos. Uh, that's the way I like it. <laughs> and we'll be back in another month with Awakening Part 3, where Goliath and Lisa Maza meet for the first time. Kind of a big deal. Man enough, and he'll walk barefoot into hell. <laughs>